you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 14. If you're a guest with us, we began a new series last summer for the summer uh, in the book of Psalms. We're going to study Psalm 14 this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 575. I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, what the foolish say, Psalm 14. And this is what the Word of God says. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. I heard a news report recently that stated that the number one question people were asking the artificial intelligence website ChatGPT was, what is the meaning of life? Now let that settle in for a moment. There are many in our world who are turning to machines rather than the God who made them to discover the meaning of life. Friends, this is the height of folly. But this shouldn't surprise us. We live in a world that is broken and plagued by the curse of sin. It is a world that is deteriorating as dishonesty and division and disease and death reign. And it is a world that appears on the surface so wise, and yet, in its quest to exist without God, it has become incredibly foolish. David knew what it was like to live in a world full of folly. And in Psalm 14, David describes sinful man's futile attempt to live as if there is no God. This psalm is composed by David for the choir master. It is a song that is to be sung when God's people gather in public for worship. And as one writer declared, it is a song that acts as a dirge on depravity. Psalm 14 is a unique psalm. It has been identified as a psalm of lament, a psalm of wisdom, 
and a psalm of prophecy. In other words, no one really knows how to define this psalm. This psalm is similar in structure and language to Psalm 53. And this psalm is quoted by the Apostle Paul in his strong argument in Romans chapter 3 to show that everyone is condemned in their sin before a holy God. The repeated use of this psalm in both the Old Testament and the New Testament speaks of the importance of its message. James Montgomery Boyce agrees and he writes, Anything God says once demands attention. Anything God says twice demands our most intent attention. How then if God says something three times as he does in this case? This demands our keenest concentration, contemplation, assimilation, and even memorization. These are words which to use the collect from the Book of Common Prayer, we are to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. We're to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this psalm. And in this psalm, with the skill of a surgeon, David dissects the sinful condition of man and points man to the only solution for his sinful curse, salvation that can only be found in God. So would you note with me, first of all, in this psalm, the declaration found in verse number 1. David begins by saying, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. Now in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, Solomon gives us the theme for the whole book of Proverbs. And he writes, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Therefore, the fool who says there is no God denies wisdom itself and plunges headfirst down the path of folly. And the word fool that David uses here in verse number one is the Hebrew word nabal. It does not refer to intelligence and it doesn't refer to intellect. As the word is used in the Bible, a fool may in fact be quite intelligent and well-educated, but he is morally flawed. And that's the emphasis of this word, morally flawed. It implies in its use an aggressive perversity. And the definition of this word is personified in a man by the same name, Nabal. And the Bible describes this man in 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verse 33 as a harsh and badly behaved man. The Bible says that he refused to help David and his men. And if it wasn't for his wife Abigail's intervention, David would have killed this man. And in 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verse 25, Abigail pleads on behalf of her foolish husband to David to spare his life. And this is what she says. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, 
For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly or foolishness is with him. The fool. The fool. The morally flawed. The aggressively perverse person says in their heart, there is no God. Earlier, the psalmist asserted that it is pride that leads the foolish to declare that there is no God. And in Psalm chapter 10 and verse 4, this is what the psalmist says. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Furthermore, the psalmist will go on to describe the fool as one who actually reviles and scoffs the name of God. And in Psalm 74 and verse 18, the psalmist says, Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and how a foolish people reviles your name. Moreover, the prophet Isaiah makes it clear that the mark of a fool is iniquity. It is not intellectual deficiency. And in Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 6, the prophet says this, For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. It is this morally perverse heart of the fool, that part of a person's life that is the center and the controlling area of their life, the heart, it is this perverse aggressively perverse heart that says there is no God. Now this phrase, there is, that David uses in verse number one, it has been added to our English translations to make the psalm read more smoothly. And in the original Hebrew, the text actually reads this. The fool says no God. Or, the fool says, no God for me. Derek Kidner says that this phrase, there is no God, is treated in Scripture not as a sincere, misguided conviction, but as an irresponsible gesture of defiance. So, I'm laying all of this groundwork this morning for you to understand how this psalm begins. It begins with a declaration. And it is a declaration that is not based on intelligence. It is a declaration that is not based on emotions. It is a declaration that is based on the will. This declaration, there is no God, listen to me carefully this morning, friends, is a deliberate denial of of deity. It is a deliberate, willful, sinful denial of God. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament describes the foolish heart of Psalm 14 that says and declares there is no God. 
And I want you to listen carefully to this passage of Scripture. For some, it will be familiar to you. For others, it may actually help you shed light on your thinking and the thinking of the world in which you and I live in this morning. And in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, this is what the Apostle Paul says about the foolish heart. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, listen, suppress the truth. Now, what did David say about the heart? He said that the heart is morally flawed, that it is aggressive in its perversity. And what does Paul say in Romans chapter 1? He says that the wrath of God is revealed against all of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? In their unrighteousness, in their moral failure, they suppress the truth. They push back the truth. They hold back the truth of God. He goes on. And he says in verse 19, For what can be known about God, listen, is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. And so when a person says to you, There is no God. I can't understand God. God is not being revealed to us. According to Romans chapter 1 and according to Psalm 14, they are denying the truth that God has made explicitly plain and clear to them. It is a willful defiance. It is a willful choice. It has absolutely nothing to do with their intellect. It has everything to do with their sinful heart. They suppress the plain truth that God has made known to them. He goes on in verse 20. And he says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Do you hear that? His eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Not only do they suppress the truth, but God has made it plain to them. Not only has God made it plain to them, God has made it clear to them. And God has made it clear to them through His creation. And He has made clear to them His divine attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature. And the argument that Paul is making about the sinful, foolish heart in Romans chapter 1 is that if you would just look out the windows of this sanctuary this morning and look at creation, all of creation is testifying to you this very moment while I am testifying to you this morning through the preaching of the Word of God that there is one true God who exists. And this creation is testifying to His power and to His sovereignty and to His rule and to His reign over all. And that it is testifying in such a way as you have no excuse before this holy God. He has made himself clear and plain to you. And you are without excuse. But in your foolishness you suppress the truth. 
And Paul goes on in verse 21 and says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Listen, listen to how he ends it. And their foolish hearts were darkened. It's the fool. It's the morally flawed who willfully rejects the one true and living God. Do you know what David is teaching us here in verse 1, friends? The fool is a person who so tampers with their heart that they have no place for God in their life. They've made a conscious decision to live as if God did not exist. And there are many. There are many who are happy and joyful this morning to believe that God does not exist. Because in their heart and in their foolishness and in their stubborn will, they do not want the God of the Bible to exist. James Montgomery Boyce agrees with this and he writes, everything about the fool is offensive to God and God is an offense to them. He is sovereign, they are not, though they wish they could be. God is holy, they are not. His holiness is a condemnation of their sin. He is omniscient, they are not. They find his knowledge of them to be unsettling. He is love, they are filled with hatred. He is gracious, they are ungracious. He is wise, they are foolish. They are so foolish that they suppress what they really do know to be true about him. They suppress it. Because they're foolish. And those who are foolish are those who are so caught up in their self. They are their own God. And they boldly in their foolishness assert their independence against the one who created them and gave them life. And the Apostle Paul gives God's final verdict on the fool and on atheism. And this is what he says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they become utter fools. That's why Spurgeon said, to say there is no God is to belial the plainest evidence, which is obstinacy, to oppose the common consent of mankind, which is stupidity, and to stifle the conscience, which is madness. It is madness. It is utter folly to deny that there is a God. And you may be here this morning, and you may find yourself being described in verse number one by David. You've convinced yourself that there is no God, or that if he does exist, he would not be interested in someone like you, or that if he does exist, he is so far removed from creation. I mean, after all, just look around you and see all the pain and the suffering and the evil and the heartache. Doesn't that prove that God doesn't exist? I want to say to you this morning, dear friend, that these thoughts that you are thinking and saying to yourself come from a deceived, darkened heart. And your heart in its sinfulness has deceived you into thinking and believing things that are not true about God. God not only demonstrated to you that He exists through the testimony of creation, 
he not only demonstrates to you that he exists through the authority and the power of his word, he has demonstrated to you his existence by sending his son as a demonstration and an act of love to die for your foolishness so that you could live and you could be reconciled to the God who has created you. So why not today turn from your foolish thinking and your foolish living and your willful denials against God and confess your sin and place your trust in God's Son for the forgiveness of your sins and for your reconciliation to God so that you could find the peace that your heart is searching for. Only the fool says there is no God. And Christian, lest you think verse number one doesn't apply to you, have you ever asked yourself if you're a practical atheist? You say, well, what do you mean by that, pastor? Have you lost your mind? No. I remind you of Israel who repeatedly turned its back on the true and living God to worship idols that they could manipulate and control for their own gain and benefit. And you and I are just like the Israelites. We often live our lives day in and day out, making our own plans, making our own preparations, doing our own living and our decision-making as if there were no God. In essence, we become practical atheists because we practically don't live under the authority of God. Don't you find yourself to be in that category at times? Would you hear the words of David today? Only the fool lives like that. Only the fool makes this declaration. Well, secondly, we move from the declaration to the depravity. And in verses 1 to 3, this is one of the strongest passages in the Bible describing the complete depravity of man. And I want you to notice this carefully, and I'm going to try to walk through it rather quickly because I went way off the grid in, verse, in point number one. But you will be amazed, friends, at the commentary in verses one through three and how it describes the world that we find ourselves living in this morning. He begins in verse number one by talking about man's inability. He says they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now notice... In the rest of verse number one, the fool is referred to in plural language. Do you see it? Meaning that David, in the rest of verse one, in verse two, in verse three, is not just describing one individual. David is describing all of humanity apart from Christ. And there's a progression that takes place in verse number one. Do you see it? He begins with corrupt. That word literally means moral corruption. It means to be wicked. It means to be depraved in character. It means to spoil or to ruin. Here's a great example of it. Have you ever had a bag that had rotten apples in it, and you didn't realize that one of the apples was rotten, and it was down towards the bottom of the bag? And when you got down there, you found that that rot spread to the apples all around it. And so all of the apples in the bottom of the bag became spoiled and rotten. This is the eternal effect of denying God. When a person denies God, they can become completely and internally corrupt. 
This word corrupt was used to describe the complete corruption of the human race before God destroyed it in the flood. And in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 12, this is how the Bible describes the days of Noah. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And David says here in verse number 1 that their corrupt character, look at the progression, spreads to their deeds, that what they do with their lives flows from who they are. And these abominable deeds, they are Godward offensiveness, that they offend God in their deeds and in their actions and in their living. One commentator described these offensive deeds this way. He said, The surrender of the knowledge of God or even the formal belief in God opens the door to all kinds of human corruption. To deny God means ultimately to deny any transcendent basis for morality. And with order and accountability lost, all the darkness of the human spirit is unleashed. Did you hear that? All the darkness of the human spirit is unleashed. Turn on your TV when you go home this afternoon. And do you know what you're going to see? All the darkness of the human spirit unleashed. Because we're living in a world full of foolishness that says there is no God. And so this corrupt character leads to abominable deeds, which then leads to the final verdict from God. There is none who does good. No, not one. Theologian Wayne Grudem describes this statement as the total inability of man. That man is totally incapable of any spiritual good before God. And this downward progression is evident all around us. As soon as we deny God and we seek to remove Him from society, friends, we become just like the people of Noah's day, completely and fully corrupt. The denial of God leads to the denial of ourselves. We no longer have the ability to even know who we are. It is the height of utter folly. We destroy ourselves. We destroy one another. And if it weren't for the grace of the living God, we would simply self-destruct. And this is the answer to everything that is happening in our society around gender and transgender, friends. When you deny the God who has created you and created you male and female, you will deny everything else and you will come to complete and utter folly and no longer be able to even understand who you are. And that's why we pass people in our offices, on the streets, in the grocery stores, who are completely dead in their eyes and in their face because they no longer know who they are. And the one who could give them meaning and purpose in life, they have willfully 
rejected. Moves from man's inability to verse 2 and man's ignorance. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. In this verse, David pictures the Lord looking down from an elevated place of observation. The phrase to look down doesn't mean that God has to literally look down. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Nothing can be hidden from him. What this phrase looks down emphasizes is God's close, careful, and complete scrutiny of mankind. He is close, he is careful, and he completely scrutinizes mankind. Did you know that the Bible repeatedly describes Yahweh as looking down from heaven to see humanity's sin? Three times alone in the book of Genesis... The Bible describes God looking down. He looked down before the flood and saw the great wickedness of man. He looked down in Genesis 11 to a divided world at the Tower of Babel. And in Genesis 18, he looked down and he destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in all three of these instances, once God looked down and saw the condition of man, judgment swiftly followed. And David says in verse 2 that as the Lord surveyed mankind from heaven, he was searching hearts to see if there were any who had any spiritual understanding, to see if there were any on the earth who sought after and desired God. Did they understand God? Did they seek after God? And in verse 3, David will say, no, there is none who understand. There are none who seek after God. And this is the height of the Apostle Paul's argument in Romans chapter 3 when he describes the whole world standing guilty before a holy God because of their sin. And his final summation is there is none who are righteous. There are none who, are, who do good. No, not one. And this is exactly what Jesus taught his disciples in John chapter 6. He said that no one can spiritually understand God, and no one can come to God unless the Holy Spirit of God draws them. And in John 6, he said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Do you understand what the psalm is saying this morning, friends? Left to ourselves, corrupt humanity is incapable of ever understanding God. Corrupt humanity is incapable of ever seeking after God unless God intervenes through His Spirit and through His grace. No one will understand Him or seek Him. He moves in verse 3 to man's immorality. He says they've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who do does good not even one notice again all of the language in verse 3 is plural it is all inclusive it is emphasizing the universal depravity of all mankind and notice what he says he says all mankind has turned their back on God all mankind has become tainted and morally polluted and corrupt that word uh, become corrupt, or that phrase here, has the idea of soured milk. You ever go to your kitchen and open your refrigerator, and as soon as you open the door, uh, a smell comes out and makes you take a step back, and you say, oh, I think something is spoiled or gone bad in there. 
That's the idea and the picture behind this word. There are none who do good, not even one. We are totally depraved in our personality. Our minds are darkened. Our emotions are depraved. Our wills are deadened. Friends, do you see? This is where the denial of God ultimately leads. It ultimately leads to a loss of the knowledge of ourselves. It ultimately leads to complete and utter corruption. It ultimately leads to us engaging and embracing in the things that we think will actually bring us freedom and peace and joy and life, only to find at the end of that pursuit we are held captive by the cords of our own sin. This is what the denial of God does to us. And the Apostle Paul summarizes this depravity in one verse in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is all inclusive, friends. When he says all, he means all. That means you, that means me, that means every single person who's ever been born in this world has been born a sinner. And because we've been born in sin, our sin separates us from the God who created us. And it is only through the work of God's Son, the Lord Jesus on the Christ, that we can be reconciled to the God who created us. It is only through Christ's work on the cross that the sins that we deserve to die for could be paid for in and through His blood. And it is only through the work of Christ on the cross that we can find real meaning, real purpose, real life. And I wonder this morning, has there ever been a time in your life where you recognized that you were a sinner? That you were just like verses 1, 2, and 3 of Psalm 14 describe. And in that moment, did you ever confess your sin to God? And turn from it and ask God to save you through the work of his son. And my final question for you about that this morning is, if you did that, when you asked him to save you, did your life change? Or did you just pray a prayer, walk an aisle, talk to somebody, and go on living the way you've always lived after that prayer? See, every person that Jesus saves, he changes. And if he's never changed you, it's because you don't know him. Well, we see the declaration and we see the depravity. In verse 4 and verse 6, we see the disdain. And things will move much quicker now. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord... And then at the beginning of verse 6, he says, you would shame the plans of the poor. So what is the outcome of this depravity that David has just described in verses 1, 2, and 3? Well, the answer is verse 4 and verse 6. The outcome of total depravity is a complete and utter disdain for God and for his people. Now, notice what David does in verse 4. He asks a rhetorical question. Have they no knowledge? Has who no knowledge? 
the evildoers, the foolish, the wicked, the people that he's been describing for three verses, have they no knowledge? And the answer to David's question in verse 4 is yes, they have no knowledge. That the fool who says in their heart, there is no God, are so corrupt that they do not possess even a basic knowledge of God. That they turn their back on God and they refuse to seek Him. They are completely lost in their ignorance. And listen, they are unable to see reality the way God has designed it. They really do not understand what they are doing. Now, they'll never say this to you. They will say to you they completely understand what they're doing. They completely understand how they're living. But in the quiet moments of their life, when the noise has died down, they have no clue because they have no knowledge. And look at verse 4. The evildoers are so abominable in their deeds. Look at what they do. They eat up God's people as they eat bread. Bread in the Bible is one of the the pictures of life-giving sustenance. And don't miss what David is saying. The fool who says there is no God becomes so corrupt that they eat up, they swallow up, they devour God's people On a daily basis, they exploit them, they devour them, they swallow them up. And then look in verse number 6. David goes on and says, And in their disdain and in their lack of knowledge, they shame the plans of the poor. It's military language that describes utterly destroying and humiliating the enemy. Oh, friends, you can say just about anything in the world and be accepted as long as it has nothing to do with Jesus, as long as it has nothing to do with the Bible. If you say something about Jesus, if you say something about the Bible, if you say something about your faith, the world says that you're a fool. The world puts you to shame. The world wants to devour you and swallow you up. Just like David is describing in verse 4 and in verse 6. Mark Sayers, in his book, The Disappearing Church, describes the post-Christian ideology of the world. And he says that this post-Christian ideology of the world views biblical faith through a narrow and simplistic lens. I think that's actually very helpful. A narrow and simplistic lens in which Christianity exists as a powerful cultural straitjacket. That's it. Restraining Western culture from freedom, pleasure, and progress. And that Western culture will flourish as soon as Christianity is regulated to history's garbage dump. End quote. You wonder this morning if your Bible is relevant? Could verse 4 and verse 6 of Psalm 14 
be more relevant than the world that you're going to walk back out to in a few moments when you leave this building? You and I who gather in this place to worship God and to serve Him and to sing His praises and to study His Word are seen by the world around us as a crippling straitjacket. And they will devour us as people eat bread. They will shame us. And notice what he says in verse 5. They are so spiritually blind that they will not call upon the Lord. It means that they will not ask God for His help. They will not worship God. They will not serve God. They will not have a relationship with the God that created them. The foolish do not think they need God. They do not want God, and they will refuse to worship God. It's the disdain. It's the disdain of the world. So we see the declaration, the depravity, the disdain. In verses 5 and 6, we see the deliverance. David says, There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. I'll remind you this morning that it's important that when we are studying the Psalms, that this book, like the rest of the Bible, presents humanity as belonging to two categories. It presents humanity as belonging to the righteous or the wicked, the godly or the ungodly, the saved or the lost, the wise or the foolish. And beginning in the middle of verses 4 through verse 6, do you notice what David does? He refers to God's people. For all of these verses, David has been describing the foolish. And all of a sudden, in the middle of verse 4, he begins to describe God's people. And it makes you beg the question of the psalm, doesn't it? Well, where did they come from? Well, God's people in verse number 4 are the same type of people that David has been describing in verses 1, 2, and 3. They're the atheistic, corrupt, abominable people of these verses. The only difference is that through the work of God's Son, the Lord Jesus on the cross, God has taken these atheistic, corrupt, abominable people and has made them His children. And all of us are just like them. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3 say that all of us are born in sin, that we follow the devil, that we live for the pleasures of this world, that we're corrupt in our thinking and in our living. And then verse 4 says, But God in His mercy and His grace and love with the great love with which He loved us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins made us alive in Jesus Christ. That's how you become God's people you are made alive by God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And this is crucial to understanding the end of this psalm. God's people are right here at the end of His psalm. And notice at the beginning of verse 5 how David describes these foolish deniers of Yahweh. Do you see it? There they are in great terror. That phrase, great terror, means they fear to fear. Why were they afraid? Why were these foolish deniers of Yahweh afraid? Well, look at what the text says. Because in their rebellion and spiritual blindness, they could not see that the people that they were devouring like bread were God's people. And the God they were denying was the God who was with the generation of the righteous, the God who is the refuge for His people. 
You see, friends, when you deny God and devour his people, you are headed for a confrontation with God and you will lose. You will lose every time. Now, Christian, do you see verse 5 and 6? Do you realize what David is teaching you? That in the midst of a disintegrating culture that you woe and complain about every single day, Yahweh is still present with you. And Yahweh is still protecting you. That he is still a refuge for his people. That he is still with the generation of the righteous. So why are you losing heart? Why are you in a bad mood with your wife all of the time? You're living for the wrong world. This world is never going to satisfy you and give you peace. You were made for the world to come. So why lose heart? Is he your God or not? Does he exist or not? Well, we see the declaration, the depravity, the disdain, the deliverance. And finally, in verse 7, we see the delight. Oh, the salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. David looked around and he saw all of the moral chaos and the misery of the world. And he ends this psalm of depravity with hope and longing. Notice what he does in verse 7. He prays a threefold prayer. He prays for salvation from the foolish evildoers of the world. He prays for restoration of God's people. And when he says the restoration, think Job. And think Job 42.10 where the Bible says, And God restored to Job doublefold of all that he lost. That is the restoration that awaits the people of God. A salvation, a restoration. And look at the third prayer. A time of rejoicing. This was David's vision. This is what David longed for. This is what David hoped for. This is what David prayed for. And what David saw and hoped and longed for dimly, you and I see clearly. We see clearly that salvation did come out of Zion. And that it wasn't just for Israel. It was for all of the world. And we see clearly that a full and final salvation will once again come out of Zion when the Lord Jesus Christ will ultimately and completely fulfill David's prayer. Oh, friends, for a time we may be afflicted and humiliated by the world, but there is coming a day when God's people will rejoice in the victory of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ over the world. And on that day when complete and final salvation has been delivered, John says in Revelation chapter 7 that a great multitude that no one could number, clothed in white robes, will cry out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And that is the cries of joy that will remain for all eternity long after the pains and the suffering and the moral chaos and depravity of this life have ended. It really will 
be a time of rejoicing. And because we know Christ, we can rejoice now because we're going to rejoice then. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul contrasts the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. And he says to the rebellious, sinful, unbelieving world, the message of Jesus Christ is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is wisdom. And it is the power of God. Friends, in this psalm, David reminds us that no matter how much we may deny God, in the end, it does not change the reality of God one bit. Every single person in this room and every single person who has ever lived will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day. And all of us will give an accounting of our life to him. And if you are in the condition that Psalm 14 describes, apart from Jesus Christ, you will not be ready for that day when you meet Jesus Christ face to face. It is only by acknowledging your sin, turning from it, and trusting in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for your forgiveness, for your salvation, for your restoration, and for your reconciliation to God that you will be ready for that day. And so I ask every one of you this morning, if you were to die today, if you were to die today, would you be ready to meet God? I promise you, I promise you, on that day, when you stand before him, you'll never deny God again. Are you ready to meet God? Or are you with the fools and say in your heart, there is no God? Let's pray.